Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and I'm working hard to turn Nature's Archive into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. And as I look to expand and improve my offerings, please also consider becoming a patron through Patreon. You'll get special perks like stickers, exclusive content, and more. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. Today's guest is Allison Young. She's co-director of the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences. Allison has a background in marine biology, including an MA in marine biology from Humboldt State University and a BA in biology from Swarthmore College. At the Cal Academy, Allison is a driving force behind the City Nature Challenge, which is a four-day global bioblitz event that had over 1.25 million nature observations in 2021 across 400 different global locations. So mark your calendars. It's happening again this year, April 29th to May 2nd, local time, and I hope all of you plan to participate. I know my calendar is full of fun and unique events all four days. Today, Allison and I discuss the community, science, and the fun that is the City Nature Challenge and how you can participate in this year's event. Whether you live in a city or not, in northern or southern latitudes, or are stuck at home, you can participate, and Allison offers wonderful insights for all of those scenarios. We discuss the goals of the challenge and, of course, exactly what it is. Allison also tells us how the City Nature Challenge grew from what was initially thought to be a one-time competition between two rival cities, Los Angeles and San Francisco, to the massive annual event that it is today. And Allison also offers several tips for making useful observations in iNaturalist, taking good photos, and how to make the City Nature Challenge a fun and enticing event, even if the season or weather isn't what you'd consider optimal for your area. You can get more information at citynaturechallenge.org and follow the City Nature Challenge at SitNatChallenge on both Twitter and Instagram. Of course, those will be linked in the show notes. Also, follow Allison at Allison Kestrel on Twitter and Instagram, or just Kestrel on iNaturalist. Without further delay, Allison Young. Allison, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. So I guess this is going to be my third year participating in the City Nature Challenge. And since the podcast is only about a year and a half old, I thought, why not do an episode about it so that I can learn more and hopefully my audience can learn more and we can just continue to grow this thing. Thus, I've asked you to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I love talking about the City Nature Challenge. Yeah, it's a really interesting origin story as well. But before we jump into that, I'd like to understand a little bit about you and where did you grow up? How did you get interested in nature? I'd like to hear your path to the City Nature Challenge. Yeah. So I grew up in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area in Lafayette, born and raised there. And in terms of my interest in nature, like I can't point to one specific thing that really got me hooked, but I was in Girl Scouts growing up. We spent a lot of time outside camping as a family as well. And I think what really put me on this path that I am on today is, you know, when I decided to go to college and I was trying to figure out what my major was going to be. And I decided to go into college as an English major. And I decided to also go to college on the other side of the country over on the East Coast over in Philadelphia. And so I got to college and I was just like, I'm interested in biology too. So I'll take the intro bio class. And the first intro bio class that first semester was a lot of lab work, like cellular biology, things like that. But then the second intro bio class was ecology. And like, suddenly all my classes were like outside 
outside and we were like walking in the forest of Pennsylvania. And I was like, wait a second, this is a job. <laughs> I can have, have a, a day-to-day life where I get to be outside most of the time. Forget being an English major. I'm going to be a biology major. <laughs> and that put me on this path that I am today now, where I try to spend lots of time outside in my personal life and as much as I can in my work life, but organizing events that get other people outside as well. That's amazing. And I, I was having flashbacks to my schooling and <laughs> yeah, biology was just classroom work for me. And I don't think I realized that there was this whole other world that existed. And uh, the light bulb just went off with you saying that. So I, yeah, I really hope we're doing a better job these days in yeah. showing kids that you can actually go outside. There's field work, there's ecology, there's all this other fun stuff to get people connected. Right. It's not just like lab coats and beakers and microscopes, although that part is certainly super interesting and super important. Mm -hmm. But for some folks, that's just not the path that's going to interest them. Yeah, especially throwing people at dissecting worms or frogs or something right (laughs) out of the gate. That's not necessarily the best entry point. Exactly. (laughs) So now you're at the California Academy of Sciences. Can you tell me a bit about that organization and how it relates to the City Nature Challenge? Yeah. So the Cal Academy, for folks that haven't been there, is located in the middle of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. It's been a San Francisco institution now for, I think we're going on 168 years now, (laughs) if I'm doing the math. But yeah, we're a natural history museum. We have a public floor where people can come and learn about biodiversity. We also have a planetarium, we have an aquarium, we have a rainforest. But like most natural history museums, we're really focused on biodiversity and teaching people about it and connecting people to amazing places around the world that are super biodiverse. And what a lot of folks might not know about the Cal Academy and maybe about natural history museums in general is that there's also like a science of natural history. Like we have scientists, I'm one of them, folks that travel around the world studying biodiversity in in biodiversity hotspots where they go and describe new species in those places. They work to understand relationships between species and things like that. And I ended up at the Cal Academy as a way to think about how can we get more people involved in the science of natural history? How can we basically do what was called at the time citizen science? Now we tend to call it community science more, but how can we get the public involved in this type of research and documenting and discovering biodiversity wherever they are? And for listeners of the podcast, I had a previous guest that had an affiliation with the Cal Academy, and that was uh, Cricket Raspit, our episode about dock fouling. Nice. (laughs) Getting people interested in community science and biodiversity, it's a natural combinatorial thing. Tell me then a little bit about the combination of the interest in biodiversity and community science. I believe you were an early adopter of iNaturalist, or at least using it several years ago. How were you using it back, say, pre-City Nature Challenge? Yeah. So when we were starting up our community science program, We really wanted people to have that same, like that feeling of just getting to be really curious and looking around them and discovering the species around them that our curators have when they go and and travel to places around the world. But obviously our curators, they collect a specimen. That's the evidence that we saw this species here on this date, and then they collect it and they bring it back to the museum where it's used for lots of different things. But what we didn't want was to basically send people out there into the world and say, collect a bunch of things and send them to us. Like that would have been a logistical nightmare. When we started our community science program, we were trying to figure out kind of an easy way for people to be able to collect that same information what we call a species occurrence record. Like I saw this species at this place on this date. And that's used in like for in science in lots of different ways. But That wasn't just like them writing it down on a piece of paper and sending it to us. And so we started exploring 
potential apps that people could use to do that sort of work. And that's how we discovered iNaturalist. And so we started running our program basically in 2011, 2012, where we started to ask people, we had developed programs in the Bay Area, like a plant program up on Mount Tam and the tide pool program uh, down on the San Mateo coast, because both my co-director and I are actually marine biologists. So we wanted to have a project that kind of ties into our work too, where we were asking people to basically document species using iNaturalist at the time because it's the same information that we have on a specimen. So we can actually use the data together, which is really cool, like our historic specimens and this current biodiversity data that people are collecting through iNaturalist. That's how iNaturalist came into the picture. We, we tried a few different apps in the very beginning, but eventually settled on iNaturalist as the easiest for people to use and to understand. And then for us to also be able to get the data out of as well. And back in that era, I don't think there was any concept of artificial intelligence or machine learning in iNaturalist. So you had to have a little bit of help unless you were already trained in the subject matter, already knew the organism that you were looking at. So it it makes sense. Were your curators and leaders already iNaturalist users at that point, or was this just sort of a brand new thing across the organization? No, this was brand new across the organization. My co-director and I, we had both been using iNaturalist already. And when we started those two projects, the plant project up on Mount Tam, we were collaborating with the Marin Municipal Water District up there. So then they started using iNaturalist. They had been using a few different other like apps to try to document plant biodiversity. But we liked the fact that iNaturalist, you could document anything. It didn't have to be like one specific group of organisms. And so it was through my co-director and I, using iNaturalist and bringing it into our community science programs that now actually iNaturalist is part of the Cal Academy. But it was the fact that we were such early adopters and we had started using it in this program that the iNaturalist team actually approached us and said, hey, like we're looking for an institutional home. Is there any way that you could help us get into the academy or talking to the folks in leadership at the academy? So we began that relationship. It sounds like really a a perfect match having this app and then the progression of the capabilities of the app over the years. So then can you tell me then as you were starting to to use the app more integrated into your programming and partnerships, how did you end up getting involved in this competition with Los Angeles? Yeah, it's a great story. When I got my position at the Cal Academy, I was the first person that had the words citizen science in their title when I first started at the Academy. And my colleague down at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, Leela Higgins, she had started working down at NHMLA just like a year or two earlier than I did. And so I think she had seen the position get advertised up at the Cal Academy and then basically looked me up, cold called me like back when I first got the job and basically said, hey, we both are like have citizen science in our titles. And we both work at natural history museums, we should talk like we should like collaborate on things. And yeah, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County had also been an early adopter of iNaturalist as well. And they had started using it for their community science programs, really focused in and around Los Angeles County. And so we had done a lot of talking, we had talked about using iNaturalist and how to get people involved in our programs generally, but we had never done a project together. And so back in 2016, There was an announcement of the first ever Citizen Science Day, and that was a result of the White House formally recognizing citizen science as an important source of data. And they started asking their agencies to develop programs and to involve the public in collecting data. And so the Citizen Science Association and another platform called SciStarter decided together to celebrate this fact that like we're getting this national recognition for citizen science. And so let's have the Citizen Science Day. And so they basically put the word out to all of us that are 
in that realm, the practitioners and things like that, hey, can you do something like this day in April is going to be Citizen Science Day. Can you do something to bring awareness to citizen science or get people involved doing it? And so my co-director, Rebecca Johnson, and I, we were sitting in our office and we're just like, what should we do? Like, this seems really big. We should do something fun. Like, we should do something big for this. And so we started thinking about what if we did something with Los Angeles for this? We've never done a project together. So we called up Leela and kind of brainstormed what this could be. And we said, our two cities are already such natural rivals, especially in the sports you know, arenas. But can we make a competition about nature? And so we worked together that first year to come up with the first ever City Nature Challenge. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, it's a perfect rivalry. As you said, it's already a natural rivalry in terms of it's two of the larger cities in the state. You have the whole NorCal versus SoCal sort of dynamic exactly. going on, the, the sports teams. So perfect. Did you consider involving other cities at that point? Or was it just these were really the only two you saw that were actively engaged in this manner? We just thought that, thought that this was going to be basically a one-off event, like to celebrate this one Citizen Science Day. So we thought this is good enough. You know, let, let's do San Francisco versus Los Angeles. We know that we both use iNaturalist in our community science programs. We also knew that we both had the capabilities of organizing our local areas too. So yeah, we didn't at all think about expanding it. We just thought, let's just take on this rivalry and make this challenge about nature that first year just between our two cities. Like so many things, it starts small or starts with a different objective and, and then it takes on a broader life, it sounds like. Totally. How did that broader life come to be? Yeah, so that first year, the City Nature Challenge was actually eight days long, which turned out, turned out to be like double the time it should have been. It was exhausting keeping that up. But our two museums were taunting each other on uh, social media, right? Like about the things we were finding and who was going to win the City Nature Challenge and things like that. And so through that social media you know, promotion, other people were just like, what is the City Nature Challenge? Can my city do the City Nature Challenge? And so Leela and I... We're just like, maybe there is an appetite for this, like beyond just this one-off event. And is there a way that we could actually think about scaling the City Nature Challenge to let more cities become involved? So yeah, in 2017, we said, okay, we don't want to open it up too big too quickly because we we're still trying to figure out like how to scale this in a way that makes sense. And so we opened it up to uh, any city in the United States that wanted to participate. And all we asked is that we have to have an organizer, like someone we can work with who's willing to do the work and promote it and tell people that it's happening and tell people the results and things like that. Yeah. And the tech back in, the iNatural is back in. I guess you also have to be careful about not overloading that too, if you suddenly are having, you know, hundreds of thousands or 10. And maybe at that, yeah, give me some metrics. Like how many observations, how many species were you seeing back in the early days? You know, that first year when it was just San Francisco and Los Angeles, we had told a reporter where we were actually talking to a reporter at the LA Times and she said, okay, how many observations do you want to get? And Leela, like, 
just said 10,000. And I was just like, oh my gosh, she's crazy. Like, why did she just say that? But I was like, okay, I'll roll with it. And I'll say that San Francisco wants to get 10,001. And sure enough, that first year we did actually together make about 20,000 observations over those eight days. So when we opened it up to any city in the US in, in 2017, we had 16 cities participate, which like at the time we're like, wow, 16 cities. Now, when you think about the city nature challenge, 16 is nothing. But we went from making those 20,000 observations in eight days. In 2017, we shortened it to five days and we made 125,000 observations. And we completely broke iNaturalist in that second year. There were times where people, we were getting so many emails from people who were just like, I'm trying to upload my observations and nothing's happening. The wheel just keeps spinning or like, I'm trying to get to the app, my project on the app and nothing is happening. So yeah, there were some growing pains (laughs) that first year. Luckily, iNaturalist has done a pretty great job of keeping up with us since that first year. Yeah, that creates sort of like a circle of death in a way, because you can't upload your observation. You keep retrying. The more you retry, the more load it puts on the system. <laughs> yeah. And it was just really hard on our end because I'm just like, I'm so sorry. There's literally nothing I personally can do to help you because I don't work for iNaturalist. Like they are aware of what's going on right now. But compare it to this last year in 2021, we had 419 cities. It's four days now, and we made 1.2 million observations in four days, and iNaturalist kept up with us. There was definitely some growing pains in those early years, but uh, they've done a pretty great job of basically getting ready for the CDHA challenge every year now. Yeah, that's pretty amazing and spectacular growth. It's evolved a bit over the years. You you gave some metrics as to how it's evolved in terms of participation. If somebody walked up to you and said, just tell me, what is the City Nature Challenge today? It's no longer Mm -hmm. a rivalry between LA and San Francisco. How would you describe it? It's gone through evolution beyond just a kind of a competition focus too, because when COVID hit, we didn't really want to focus on the competition side of of the City Nature Challenge. Right now, we still call it like it's a four-day bio blitz event in in and around cities around the world basically and cities are trying to make as many observations of nature as they can they're trying to document as many species as they can and they're trying to get as many people participating in making those observations as they can back in the day we really focused on the competition side we announced winners every year but the last couple of years due to COVID, we've really focused more on the collaborative side of it. What can we do all together? And so the model hasn't changed so much. It's just more about how we talk about the results these days. We really focus on the, it's amazing what we all did together, all of us around the world, instead of saying like this city won the city nature challenge. Yeah. Of course you can still see the metrics when you go to the website. <laughs> oh yeah. And believe me, the cities that win definitely let people know that they got <laughs> the most observations or found the most species. How does one participate in the city nature challenge then if they're in one of these cities or maybe not in one of these cities? Yeah. So if you're in one of the cities, the kind of the important thing to figure out is, yeah, is your city participating? There'll be some sort of boundary where you're either in the the city nature challenge or you're outside of the city nature challenge. And for most cases, like here in the Bay Area, we do all nine counties that touch the Bay. It's just an easy boundary that people understand when you're in, in a county and when you move to another county. So as long as you're in the boundary for your city... Almost every city uses iNaturalist. I'm guessing probably most of the folks listening to this, if your city's participating, your city's probably using iNaturalist. But all you have to do then is go out and make observations using iNaturalist between April 29th, which is a Friday. So starting literally at 12.01 in the morning that Friday, all the way until midnight of the following Monday, which is May 2nd. So you have four days. You go and use iNaturalist. You make observations. Once you upload them, they automatically get added to your city's project. 
So it's pretty simple as long as you have the iNaturalist app and you can get out there and, and document what you see around you. And that start time you mentioned at midnight, that's rolling with your local time zone. It's it's local time. Yep. And I'm curious about you specifically as someone who's organizing and promoting these events, do you get a chance to participate or are you having to coordinate everything behind the scenes and stuck at your desk all day during the event? <laughs> no, we definitely tell the other organizers, we warn them ahead of time. Hey, we want to be outside and making observations too. <laughs> so if something comes up, go ahead and email us, but you might not get a, like an instant response from us. So yeah, me and my co-director, we usually have tried to make, strike a balance between organizing events that people come to where we might spend more of our time kind of teaching people how to use iNaturalist and guiding people through that process where we personally might not be making as many observations, but we also try to leave like a day or two where we can, you know, just go out and on our own, just go and go to those places that we know in the Bay Area where we can get lots of, you know, cool species or interesting places um, and make observations ourselves as well. Cause that's a huge part of the fun too. I'm curious now, what do you focus on? As a marine biologist, you probably get drawn that way, but then you're, maybe you're thinking, I know where to find some really unique things that maybe other people won't report. So how do you choose what to do? When the years where the City Nature Challenge is during some good low tides, we almost always try to have a public event in the tide pools at least one day, just because there's hundreds of species all in one concentrated place. And so when we can get lots of people out there documenting what we find in the tide pools, then we can get a lot of species for the Bay Area. And so definitely we try to hold a tide pool event for any anyone to show up. But then I live in Sonoma County. And so I really like to get up into the corners of the Bay Area that not as many people go to. Northeastern Napa County has some cool serpentine areas that I like to get to where you can get some rare plants and rare insects and things like that. Although I am a marine biologist, because I've been using iNaturalist now for so many years, and in so many different ways, as we think about like, you know, getting the public involved in using iNaturalist and holding events that I feel like I've definitely learned a lot more about like terrestrial biodiversity also. So I get really excited about, yeah, those rare wildflower flowers you can find or just areas that are just like amazingly biodiverse on the terrestrial side as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, you get to the edges of the of any boundary and you're probably going to start touching habitats that transition zones anyway, that, uh, that afford you some new and unique opportunities. Exactly. So I'm focusing a bit on you at the moment, but during the City Nature Challenge, have you found anything that jumps to mind as exciting or rare or unexpected during these events? I know I, I have found things in the past, especially when I get up into those like corners of Napa County that were like, like I found a moth once that was like the first record of it on iNaturalist uh, back in kind of the early City Nature Challenge events. I feel like, oh, and, and also, I mean, just going to serpentine areas, I feel like every year I find really amazing jewel flowers, rare jewel flowers and, and fritillaries and things like that. But I feel like also the Bay Area is such a nature focused place. And because we've been, we're one of two cities that have been doing this the longest, LA is the only other one that's done the City Nature Challenge as long as we have, that more and more people now are keyed into those places to go and get those rare species. And so every year during the City Nature Challenge, someone documents something unique and interesting. There's usually lots of, of examples of unexpected finds just because we have so many people around the world out there documenting and looking for species. But yeah, here in the Bay Area, I feel like we had to have those like, unique and rare corners totally covered these days. Yeah, got it. It it reminds me a little bit maybe of around December time frame, there are all these Christmas bird counts that happen and people they've been doing it for well the Christmas bird counts been going on for 100 years plus. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people know where to go and where to look, but then uncover the vagrants and the rarities and and all that. So then you have the the nice outcome for the next couple of weeks after that, you can go look for these things yourself too. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. So speaking of the useful outcomes of the community science outcomes, can you tell me a little bit about what the City Nature Challenge has been able to accomplish? And I, I suppose this could be measured in a, a variety of different ways. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like looking at the data side of the City Nature Challenge, we know there's just there's the inherent fact that like when you're making and sharing observations on iNaturalist, you're contributing to this big data side, right, of, of where species are found around the world. And we know for sure that those data get used in lots of different ways that people download data sets off of GBIF that include City Nature Challenge data as they try to answer big questions, species distributions and how they're changing and things like that. So there is that general contribution to science that we know the City Nature Challenge does. We have had uh, people look just at City Nature Challenge data to kind of understand biodiversity and land use in and around urban areas. We've had a paper published that used uh, a set of City Nature Challenge data from one year to look at that. And then the focusing on one observation being really important, we do have lots of examples of, like I said, kind of people finding things that were unexpected. Here in the Bay Area, in one of the City Nature Challenges, I want to say maybe in 2018, someone was looking... I think in a botanical garden in the East Bay and discovered this hammerhead worm that not only was the first observation for California, it was also the first record for North America, which was pretty amazing. We discovered here in the Bay Area, we've had uh, species that were thought to be like locally extirpated, refound during the City Nature Challenge that we had a high school student in 2020 over in Washington, D.C. in a county actually um, in Virginia discover a white spotted slimy salamander. I think that was the name. It had thought to be um, extirpated from the area since 1977. No one had seen it since then. And he refound it as part of the City Nature Challenge as well. We always have amazing examples of first records of things or things that we didn't know it was in this place and someone found it during the City Nature Challenge. And so there's this like amazing discovery side of the City Nature Challenge data. And then finally, in terms of immediate use of the data, a lot of our City Nature Challenge organizers are either city governments or city parks departments or like county parks departments, or they partner with their local city governments or their parks departments. And we definitely have a lot of examples of a new population of a non-native species that the parks department didn't know was there. And so they were able to go in and remove it before it became a problem like discovered during the City Nature Challenge or a new population of a rare and endangered plant that was found that they can now make sure they protect and manage for and things like that as well. So often in terms of how that data directly translates into use on the ground. We often see that more at the local level for the City Nature Challenge. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought so much about that. And I know every land manager I talk to stresses the importance of early detection of invasive species and, and newly exactly, introduced species. Yeah. And yeah, that is a really good point. Speaking of the organizers of these events, you said that you need a, a local contact in each city that participates, but I know then they work very hard to reach out to maybe other parks departments, local organizers, community organizers to create events and sub events and so forth that correspond. I guess we could take this in a couple directions. Do you have any interesting anecdotes or stories about things that have worked well for organizers in the past, whether it's at that city level or more at the the individual group that's like maybe organizing a sub bio blitz that just is intended to overlap with the city nature challenge? 
Yeah, we've seen really interesting partnerships happen because of the City Nature Challenge. So at that city level, a lot of our organizers, many of them have jobs where they can organize the City Nature Challenge as part of their job. But we do also have organizers that have to do it like totally as a volunteer. They do it outside of their regular jobs as well. And we've seen definitely interesting collaborations come up with people reaching out to their local, you know, we think about parks departments or like other museums, but also people who are really getting um, amazing networks with their local Audubon Society, their local Native Plant Society, their local chapters of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and things like that to build those partnerships. What are those different audiences that each of our organization touches that would all potentially be interested in kind of this getting people out in nature or connecting people to nature or like documenting more biodiversity? And how can we all work together to make this happen in our city? So there's been some great examples of those cool partnerships that have happened. There's other folks that you know, one of our organizer in Hong Kong, he actually organizes a whole second separate City Nature Challenge event for schools in Hong Kong, but they do it in November basically to get ready to participate for the City Nature Challenge. So they have a whole big school competition. That training happens. program, it sounds like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great because it, it teaches those students like how to make good observations and what are the, you know, really looking for wild plants and animals, not just your cat and like your potted plants and things like that. So it does actually teach them how to you know, really be part of that global community and contribute good data and interesting observations to the City Nature Challenge as well. And then there's been some great volunteer organizers who have created their own naturalist club through the City Nature Challenge. They reach out to all of those other people that they see are using iNaturalist in their cities, kind of those power users. And they've come together and actually like sustained a group past that first City Nature Challenge that they participate in, where they go out and do hikes on their own together. And they lead other events for each other as well. And then they work together to organize the City Nature Challenge also. So there's so many ideas in here, and I'm hoping that we'll get this interview published at least a month in advance of the City Nature Challenge. So anybody out there who has kids in scouts, like here's an opportunity. You can get badges. Like there's different things that that they can do to coordinate this. You mentioned schools, environmental clubs, ecology clubs at schools. Yeah. So many different ways to to get people out there and, and also start to reach beyond the choir of those who are already engaged in nature. Totally. Yeah, for sure. And in fact, like I'm thinking back to, to, I guess it was 2020. We're, we're in this time warp, right? Since the pandemic started. Yeah, what is time these days? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and in fact, two of my past guests on the show, Chloe Van Loon and Marav Von Schock, they did a presentation in collaboration with a local nonprofit helping people prepare for the City Nature Challenge. And I remember just learning so much. I, I thought I knew a little bit at that point, but I learned so much about where to go look and how to go look and how... You can do things like light trapping at night or, or light attracting at night for moths and different things like that. I guess the my long-winded monologue here is, is basically to say, look for events. If anybody's out there wondering about how they can participate, look for events. You can search YouTube. You can search all over the place and see presentations and ideas and sky's the limit. Yeah. And a lot of our local organizers have created their own City Nature Challenge websites where you can go and learn more about it. And one of actually one of the cool things, one of the silver linings to the pandemic is that so many of our organizers had to pivot to virtual events, especially in 2020. But we now we've been able to share that capacity across our organizers. So especially ahead of the City Nature Challenge, some of our organizers have said, hey, I'm going to hold a training on how to use iNaturalist. And I'm going to hold it in Spanish because we actually have a ton of Spanish speaking cities, but I'm going to open up to anybody. Like I'm, I'm doing it particularly for my city, but anyone who wants to come. And so we're actually... Um, 
going to be put, publishing a list on the citynaturechallenge.org website too of kind of these bigger events that organizers that, that might not be in your city, but you can come to their event ahead of the City Nature Challenge and learn how to participate or like how to use iNaturalist or how to take good photos with a cell phone, like all those things that you might want to teach people ahead of the City Nature Challenge. Yeah. And oh yeah, I was going to say beyond just say Googling City Nature Challenge Boston or City Nature Challenge your local city, it sounds like then this year, there's going to be a bit more of a directory to help people find these things. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that and how to find that? Yeah, it always takes us a while to get like the full like official city list as we're working with our organizers and, and making sure they have all the pieces in place, like a project and all that sort of stuff. But we will have up on the citynaturechallenge.org website, there will be a full uh, official city list where you'll be able to see if your city's participating and there'll be a link to that that city's project as well. So that's a great place to start to see if your city is participating in the City Nature Challenge. And then usually on the city's project, the organizers may have links to another, like here's our website for the City Nature Challenge. Here's where we're gonna publish all of our events. Or they might actually publish it in the iNaturalist project itself in the journal. Like here's the events coming up and things like that. So the citynaturechallenge.org website will then also have kind of those virtual events that are gonna happen before the City Nature Challenge as well that you can participate in if you wanna learn how to get ready to participate in the City challenge. And if you're not in one of those cities, are you just out of luck or is there still a way to participate? No, we have figured out a way to make it more inclusive because we do every year. We feel so sad. We have people who are like, why does no one organize my city? Like I can't do it, but I really want to participate. The last couple of years we have created the City Nature Challenge Global Project on iNaturalist. And the big difference with this project, but it's an easy step is you have to join that project for your observations to count. But if your city is not part of the City Nature Challenge, you can go to the City Nature Challenge 2022 Global Project. And as long as you join it, your observations will count for the City Nature Challenge no matter where you are. Great. That's That sounds great. So one extra step. Yes. That sounds like a simple step because you probably just link people directly to that project and, and then you just click join, essentially. Yeah, you click join and you have to say, I think, yes, I want to join again. Like you join it and then you say, yes, I really want to join it. I think it's a two-click process. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> so if you are in a location where your city is not directly participating in the City Nature Challenge and you want to become an organizer, how do you do that? What would be the qualifications, the timelines to enable someone to do that? We try to make it as easy as possible to be an organizer for a city, but we do require that somewhere, someone in that city is organizing. One of the things that you would want to do is we have on the citynaturechallenge.org website a form just to say, hey, I'm interested in potentially organizing my city for 2023. So you can fill that in. You'll get added to our email list. And then what we try to do basically is give organizers all of like the resources and the tools and the training that they need to make the City Nature Challenge happen in their city in like the way that works best for their city. And so we are not super prescriptive on how it has to happen. Basically, we put up guidelines. We ask organizers is that we ask you to get the word out in your city in whatever way you can. We ask you to be responsible for your own city's City Nature Challenge project. So you'll make that project on iNaturalist. So that's the platform you're going to use. And then we ask that you like report back out, somehow tell people what the results were. And the easiest thing is that iNaturalist projects have a journal and you can publish the results in the journal just as a way for people to kind of find out what happened with the City Nature Challenge. That's like really the only three requirements we ask people to do, except come to our meetings so you can learn how to do this stuff. We like read these resources that we're going to give you and we like take the handbook, <laughs> things like that. So focusing on the term city in all of this and city nature challenge, is there a minimum size that uh, an area needs to be to organize? 
No, we are, we have a very loose definition of a city. Um, in 2018, we even had a research station in Antarctica participate as a city <laughs> during the City Nature Challenge. No, we usually ask that there's like a city in quotes. It can be like a town, it can be a borough, whatever you call it, like somewhere within the organizing area. Like, don't just give us a state park, give us a city that's near that state park too, and then include that whole area in, in your area. <laughs> that's interesting. So, in theory, if you live somewhere and you're nearby some really interesting, enticing, natural area that doesn't have a big city, you could still organize people to go there for the City Nature Challenge. And totally, yeah, that's really intriguing to think about. So this sounds very grassroots in terms of how the organization works. And you have this network of people organizing each city. They may have their own personal media contacts or their own network within the parks departments or, or what have you. Are, are you seeing much traction from the traditional news media in helping to promote this, talking about the event? The year that we got the absolute most like traditional media coverage for the City Nature Challenge was 2020. Basically, because the City Nature Challenge happened six weeks after everyone went into full lockdown and everyone was looking for these uplifting stories about what you can still do to still feel like part of a community while you're sitting alone at your house or like in your backyard or only being able to take walks around your neighborhood. And so that year, especially, we actually had a ton of traditional media who was really interested in the City Nature Challenge. Like, I think locally, people are great at reaching out to their own local media sources. But that was the year that we got a lot more kind of like big national coverage of the City Nature Challenge, when people really were looking for those stories that they could tell about how you can still go out and do things and be part of something, even when you're by, by yourself in your house. Yeah. And oh, we, we need more of those stories, even now, I think. Yeah. Uh, positive community stories, like there's there's no politics in this. It's just going out and, and you know, having fun and learning from each exactly. other. Exactly. Being together while we're still apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, you, you started to touch a little bit on what it takes to to make a good observation. And I know there's always a balance here because you want to make it a frictionless, easy process for people, but it's still community science, so you want it to be useful. Do you have any suggestions or tips or pointers to resources for, for those who may be interested in, in optimizing a bit more? iNaturalist itself already has a bunch of little short videos on how do you make good observations? How do you take good photos? Things like that. So I would point people there to start off with. You know, for the City Nature Challenge itself, we really try to get people to focus on the wild nature that's in and around our cities. And so although documenting things in your backyard is totally fine, and it's a great way to learn how to use the app, like we always tell folks like, Hey, try to look for those weeds that are like growing in between those beautiful flowers that you planted or like the insects that are visiting those flowers that you planted, things like that as well. For the City Nature Challenge itself, I would say try to focus on kind of those wild organisms that you can find out there in nature as well. But then, yeah, you know, the, the main thing that we always tell folks is, especially now that iNaturalist has such great artificial intelligence, is that you don't need to know what it is you're taking a photo of. What you need to be able to do is to say, this thing looks different than this thing. So I'm going to take pictures of both of them. But then you also have to take a good enough photo that the artificial intelligence and then someone else on iNaturalist can also identify what it is that you saw. And so our, our general tips are to like try to have just that one thing in the photo as much as you can, like really zoom in on that one thing. There is the option that if it if that first photo comes out blurry, use that retry option to take another photo. <laughs> and then the fact that you can take multiple photos of things. If you see an interesting tree, like by all means, get a full photo of that tree 
but realize it's hard to ID a tree from just one big photo of it, right? Like then get in close and take a photo of the leaves or the bark or whatever it is that you see that seems like it makes that thing interesting. Try to get those features um, in photos as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've learned the lesson the hard way many times thinking that, oh, you know, here's a flower. All I need is a picture of the flower. Then I get home and I start researching and it's, oh, there's six different species that produce a very similar flower. So I really need right. to get the if leaf. Right, you had just, just taken a photo of the underside of the flower, like, yeah, you could have figured out what species it was exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so there's no limit to the number of photos you can submit. And that's what, if I have the time and I'm thinking straight <laughs> in the moment, and then right. it's okay. Well, I'll get the upper side and the underside of the leaf and the bark and the, the growth pattern and whatever, you know, is interesting at the time. One tip I give people on the photography side that seems to help a lot is when you're taking a picture of a plant, you have all these sticks and leaves and the camera doesn't always know where to focus and putting your hand behind it shields the background, the distractions that trick your camera into focusing on the wrong thing. So that's a simple little trick to getting photos and it doesn't hurt the AI algorithm at all doing that. No, it's good to teach the AI how to distinguish between a human hand and the thing you're actually taking that photo of, right? So the more photos it gets, the more it like, gets better at telling, the, telling those things apart. So Exactly. And, and people that have listened to my podcast for a while, they know I'm a huge advocate of the habitat in your own backyard. And you mentioned you can't go in your backyard. You can look for the insects, the weeds, things like that. And I would even go a step further and say... If you look closely enough, you'll probably find you know, like rust fungus on your plants or uh, what's another good example, lichen growing on an old tree or something like that. There's a lot of interesting discoveries even in your own yard. Yeah. Or if you have flower pots sitting on the ground, look under those flower pots and you never know like what little interesting things might be growing underneath those surfaces or living underneath those surfaces. And um what, especially during 2020, when people really could only be in their backyard, we also were really encouraging folks, and you mentioned this earlier, is to like, yeah, put a light out at night and see what moths and other insects you attract to that light at nighttime. Because the great thing is a lot of times they get attracted to that light and then they just sit there. So they're actually relatively easy to take photos of as well. So yeah, thinking about moth lighting at night is another great thing to do in your own backyard. Yeah. And that's a wonderful ecology lesson right there too as we've learned more about what lights, what light pollution does to, to insects and animals, you can ask the question if you have kids or, or whoever's participating, why is that moth not leaving? And what's the impact to its life if we leave this light on all night? And you can start to, to realize the connection now of, oh yeah, nighttime lighting is a problem for a lot of insects too. In this case, totally. using it to your advantage to learn a bit though. Exactly. And then you can turn that light off and they'll fly yep. away. All right. So we talked a little bit about how people can participate, even if they're not in a city. What about those who maybe are in a climate or a latitude where the timing is still not great for them? Do they have alternatives? What do you say to them? <laughs> yeah. Every year we get that question. I think of the city nature, we should have the city nature challenge in June because my area still has snow in April and, or like at the farther South, you get, we have people who are like, why don't we do it a little earlier? Things are already drying out here in June. And then our poor Southern hemisphere folks who are like, it's the fall for us. This would be great if we could do this in November when it's our spring. And like what Leela and I often say is that if we had unlimited resources and unlimited staff, and this was our only job, we 100% would hold like rolling city nature challenges that like were perfect for different latitudes throughout the year. But right now we've landed on this last weekend in, in April going into the beginning of May, just because it does seem to work for a lot of our cities, like a big majority of our cities. 
a lot of our cities and places where the timing isn't ideal, especially our northern latitude cities where there's literally been snowstorms during the City Nature Challenge, a lot of them have really embraced it as a jumping off point for getting people ready to do more nature documentation as they move more into their spring and into their summer. So they're celebrating, hey, the winter's almost done. Let's get out and do what we can right now. And then they actually, a lot of our organizers will hold more events as they move into better times for documenting nature in those areas. And down in the Southern Hemisphere, directly because of the City Nature Challenge, there's some folks in Australia now who organize the Great Southern BioBlitz. And that does happen, I think it's November maybe, but you know, basically during their spring, they have a similar-ish to the City Nature Challenge, but they basically organize across the Southern Hemisphere a way for people to get involved during their spring and to have a little competition between other Southern Hemisphere countries. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I know I have a few listeners in Australia, so I'll make sure that I find a link for that too, to uh, yeah. include in the show notes. And yeah, I guess the other thing too, when thinking about places that maybe still have snow, or it's earlier in their season and, and there's not much leafing out yet. There's not a lot to see. And I guess if you have, you, you can treat that like a challenge because there there is actually a lot you can see. And I think that when you start looking, you find that there is more than you realize. There are insects that will come out on really cold days on the snow. Part of their life cycle might include walking on snow. So with good organization and a little bit of research, you might be surprised what you can find. And it may be rare things because people aren't necessarily looking at that time of year too. Yeah, totally. Especially our Northern Latitude organizers have been like so great about that, where they will still organize events where like people who are, who think that there's nothing out there right now, like why are we doing this? And people can actually still come and they'll have those naturalists out there helping to lead events and actually showing, look, we can find this here. And if we look under here, here's things that are still around moving, even though it's so cold outside. And, you know, I think one of the other reasons that we really love although we know it's not perfect for everyone having just this one weekend is the fact that we are all doing this together. So like from those places that might still be in the snow, like all the way down to the equator where it's warm and sunny and super hot during the city nature challenge, all the way down to the Southern hemisphere where it's, it's literally fall for them. It's it, there's something really lovely and really special about all of us doing it together. Even if it's not ideal for everybody, um, especially as we lean more and more into the collaborative nature of the City Nature Challenge. That I think is the really beautiful thing about it is that we're doing this all together. You're like building your local community. You get to meet other people in your region that are interested in nature. And then in the same time, you're like, we're becoming part of this global community of all of us doing it together and connecting with each other on iNaturalist and just building kind of a, a larger community around the world of people who are interested in nature. That's a great point. Keep in mind what the goal of the City Nature Challenge is. It's not necessarily right. to get all the species. And I don't know, my mind keeps going back to getting species though. And I just going to add one other tidbit to remind everybody of, and that's, you can report evidence of an organism as well. It doesn't have to be the live organism. So uh, if it's a tree where a bear likes to scratch or footprints in the snow or whatever the case might be, a gall on an oak tree from last year. You know, yeah. Those all count too. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about this. I'm excited to participate myself. I'm already thinking about how I can clear out my work schedule to get a few more hours of observation in this year. Can you remind me of the dates for, for the City Nature Challenge? I know you said it earlier, but just one more reminder for listeners. Yeah, of course. So if we're going out and making observations, it literally starts like at 12.01 a.m. your time on April 29th, that Friday, and goes all the way basically up until midnight, 11.59 p.m. your time on Monday, May 2nd. Great. And then 
the week after that is the focused effort to help identify what's been reported. Yeah, because we have such avid participants, we kept hearing like back in the day when we used to finish the City Nature Challenge and then report the results immediately. People were just like, one, we want more time to go through everyone's observations and try to ID these things down to species. And two, especially people who take a lot of photos with real cameras and not just their phone, people who really needed more time to actually go through their photos and upload them and get them into iNaturalist before we announce the results as well. So yeah, we have a week now basically where people can spend time identifying. There's people, lots of organizers now hold identification parties during that week too, where you can get together with other people and try to help ID things. And then also that time to get everything uploaded and your observations are uploaded in in iNaturalist or whatever platform your city is using by 9 a.m. your time on Monday, May 9th. That's when we pull the results. So your observations will be part of the results as long as they're in there by then. So May, May 9th is when we announce the results. That's another great way to participate too, is helping with identification after the fact, especially if you're knowledgeable about a specific tax. There's a lot of aspects of iNaturalist that are under, under maybe not underrepresented, but under-identified, where I know that there are experts out there that could really help fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, like ex experts totally help. But we also like to really emphasize the fact that even if you're not an expert, a lot of people, maybe just like you who are not experts, when they upload things to iNaturalist, sometimes they'll leave the, the species totally blank. And so they get uploaded as unknowns. Or they might say like, this is a plant, or I know that this is a bird. So even if you have one step below that, if you're able to tell that this is a grass or like this is a asteraceae um, for plants, or even if taking those unknowns, and that's actually a, a really easy thing for anybody to do is go through those unknown observations that get uploaded and say, this is a plant, <laughs> this is a bird, this is an insect. And then those people who know their plants and their birds and their insects can actually find that observation and ID it as well. So yeah, although expert identification really helps with those trickier taxa and things that we don't have as much identification representation of on iNaturalist, that there is a role for everybody to play in helping to identify as well. Absolutely. I don't. I didn't do a great job characterizing it because the other thing I was going to say is you can learn a lot just by trying to help in the identification process. And I'm probably not really an expert in any specific area. But by doing this in the past, I can now, there's one fruit fly that I can identify really well. And so every little nice. bit helps, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. This We need more people like you out there that are, are passionate advocates for nature and organizing people to do this. It's been really enlightening to hear about how this has all come to be. And I think that this is a, a good lead into one of the questions I like to ask a lot of my guests, basically essentially tying into how did you get here? But was there, thinking back, like a top of head event or encounter or maybe uh, a, a book or meeting somebody that really stands out as escalating your interest in nature and the environment? Yeah. When I was thinking about this, I, again, like I can't point to one specific event, but there's definitely a period in my life where kind of a couple things came together that really kind of got me more interested in nature and really thinking about what I can do personally to help protect and conserve and make things better for the natural world, which is that when I was in college, I read it, it was published and, and printed at the time, like, like when I was in college, David Palman's book on island biogeography, Song of the Dodo. So I had read that and got really interested in island biogeography. And then my first semester of my junior year, me and a whole bunch of my friends decided to go study abroad. But where I went to study abroad was actually Vancouver Island. So I went to Canada to study abroad, which is always very funny for people like who went to like much farther away places. 
but I found a program that I was really interested in doing about coastal ecology and coastal resources, but not just looking at the science side, like actually thinking about the human uses of these resources and the economic side. And so I already had island biogeography on my mind. And then to go up there and be really immersed in the logging controversies that were happening up there where clear cuts were still happening. And at the same time in California, where I was from, that was the same time that like, I don't know if any remember, maybe I'm dating myself, but Julia Butterfly Hill was living up in a redwood to try to keep people from cutting it down, like a huge old growth stand of redwoods. And I just was so all those things coming together where I had just really read this book that had really gotten me thinking about like the harm that of fracturing our ecosystems can do. And like to be in a place where I could see this like really active logging and the harm it was doing. And at the same time, having this big fight for the protection of old growth redwoods happening in the place that I was from at the same time, like really got me thinking about not only what's my role in helping to protect and steward the natural world, but also really put me on the the career path that I was on today. It sounds like it tied so many different things together for you. And and I love the idea of island biogeography because that's that's a natural experiment, you know, yeah. that, that you can use to show so many different mechanisms and processes in nature and ecology. And yeah, having exactly. all that come together. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, just thinking about how we are creating our own little islands of forests by clear cutting. Just like all of that really came together for me at that time. Connectivity and isolation and yeah, all of that. Yeah. Wow. So do you have any other projects or up- upcoming events that you'd like to talk about or highlight? Yeah, I would love for anyone who uh, might be listening in California, where I am, is that we do our department at the Cal Academy, we do a similar event to the City Nature Challenge, but we do it for the California coast every year. And depending on where you are, if you're like, oh, my city's not taking part this year, um, but I'd really still be interested, or maybe if going out to the tide pool sounds way more interesting to you than hunting around your urban areas for nature that the in June of every year, we hold what we call Snapshot Cal Coast, which is basically trying to create a snapshot of coastal biodiversity along the California coastline with people, with everybody, anyone who's interested in helping us every year. And that will be coming up in June this year. There's great low tides, early morning low tides. So you got to be willing to get up early if you want to go out to those tide pools. But We also are interested in what people are finding on beaches, what people are finding in dunes, what people are finding in your local estuaries, things like that as well. And so similar to Sydney Asia Challenge, but really focused on the California coast. That sounds really interesting. How long has this been going on? So um, interestingly enough, Snapshot Cal Coast also started in 2016. That was like our year of spinning up these big scale bio blitzes. Apparently we make Snapshot Cal Coast though two weeks long. So people have lots of opportunities to go out during those low tides or not during those low tides to get out to their coastline and document their local coastal biodiversity. Sounds great. And I'll hopefully the timing in June will work and I can actually participate then. Yeah. Okay. So if people want to follow you or your work, on social media or the City Nature Challenge for that matter. You mentioned the website earlier, but can you give a few pointers as to where people can go? For the City Nature Challenge, we are on Twitter at SitNatChallenge because <laughs> City Nature Challenge is too long for a Twitter handle. Um, so it's SitNatChallenge. And we just started an Instagram account too. So that's another good place to look for us. And on my own personal accounts, I do a lot of posting of tide pools and nudibranchs especially. So if that's of interest to you, I'm Allison Kestrel on Twitter and on Instagram. Nice. And are you on iNaturalist then too, I assume? I am on iNaturalist as Kestrel. Kestrel. Yeah, because I think that's a 
underutilized feature on iNaturalist. You can actually follow interesting people and see what they're posting and seeing, which can be really cool, especially if you find someone who knows where to find interesting things. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely follow some interesting folks on iNaturalist. All right, Allison, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your enthusiasm and knowledge in this space and all the hard work you do. I imagine the next couple of months are going to be quite busy for you. So thank you for carving out the time to talk to me today. No problem. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.